everybody. Welcome to Listen Money Matters. This will be a much better world if more married couples were in, as deeply in love as they are in debt. <laughs> My name is Thomas. And I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And what are you drinking this morning, dude? Great, man. I'm, I'm peppy. I've got some. I got some local coffee today. Truck stop. Wait, you coffee? Yeah, dude. You don't do that very often. I know. Well, see, it, it's like 10 a.m. So I, I don't know if I could do the beers. It's a little early. <laughs> I, at 10:30, I could do bullet? it. Huh? Where's the Nutribullet? Oh, that was like 8.30. Oh, you did that already? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 10 a.m., so we've been up for like, what, four hours? Four and a half hours? Yeah, right. It's like, luckily, (laughs) it's like an hour and like 15 minutes. (laughs) Wow. What about you, dude? I've been up for three and a half hours, I think. Yeah. I got up a little later than usual this morning, Mm. but I didn't tell you I sprained my wrist. Doing what? Uh, I, and I'll, I'll save you the long story for a little bit later, but, uh, I ended up going down a much bigger hill on my skateboard than I thought I was going down. And then I looked ahead and saw that there was a stop sign and traffic. And I was like, well, I can either chance it flying through traffic and have like a 50% chance of dying or bail off the board and have a hundred percent chance of probably scraping myself up. And I took that one. So my wrist what? is pretty sore, but it's healing up pretty quickly. What happened to your board? It went to the side, went off a curb, went to someone's yard, and it was fine. But yeah, so catchphrase today comes from Earl Wilson. Andrew, is that a community member or a famous person or uh, he, I think D&D he, character or what? He It depends. So it's either a columnist or a baseball player. I'll say it's the columnist, and he's dead. So <laughs> Okay, so he is not. But if he was alive, he would totally be in the community. He totally would. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, guys, today in the show, we have two guests. And their names are Bobby Monks and Justin Jaffe, and uh, they are the co-authors of a book called Uninvested, which uh, talks about how, well, I guess people are taking your money in the stock market with mutual funds and things like that. So welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. I was just looking at your website, and then it didn't load. I think my computer is, is giving me some trouble today. But uh, yeah, how are you guys doing this morning? Pretty good. We, we've been up for a while, too. Have you? Yeah, I was I always forget that the East Coast is an hour ahead. So people tell me like, oh, I've been up for a few hours. Well, we're in Maine, as we told you earlier, and everybody gets up real early in Maine. So do they? Absolutely. Is it like a super active state? It's a it's a testament to your manhood, depending on how early you get up. Oh, okay. The opposite. You're in the opposite <laughs> sex. You're a big guy. Oh, okay. So no one drinks there then. No one's hung over. No, I wouldn't go so far as saying that. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but you know, if you drink, you're still up at six. Chop a few trees down and then come into the office. <laughs> Dude, that sounds great. Yeah. My backup plan, if, like, this whole podcasting and YouTube thing never works, is I'm just going to go become a lumberjack. You've already got and the beard for it. I do. Like, I have this fantasy that I can still chop down trees with an axe, and I won't have to, like, use some sort of weird automated machine or something. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it probably won't happen, but... A guy can dream. I don't think your production rate's going to be good enough to make a living. <laughs> no, trust me. I'll do a lot of push-ups. I'll be good. You're good. I can rival any saw. Okay. <laughs> oh, you'll have to come. You'll have to come visit sometime, and we'll check it out. Yeah, well, I'm at least good enough to chop firewood when I go to the lake with my friends. Right. I'll probably stick with that. So. I know you guys wrote this book, but I'd like to hear a bit about your backgrounds and uh, what led you to write a book with three different authors. 
Well, I'll tell you first about mine. Uh, I'm a what I would characterize as a chronic entrepreneur. Um, I, I started um, my career as, as a real estate developer and uh, I then morphed into other types of companies. A lot of those companies were financial companies. So uh, I have uh, started and been uh, chairman of a bank. Uh, I've been also chairman of a trust company. And I've been chairman of a company called Institutional Shareholder Services, which provides proxy services for institutional clients. We essentially electronically vote proxies for institutions, and we make recommendations for them in terms of how they vote their stock. I've also been, I've also started a number of other companies which had private equity investors, and I've also invested through private equity. So I've been around the whole investment process, uh, and so I understand where the bodies are buried. I understand where the system is broken. Um, and uh, so the genesis of this book really was to to show the average investor, to shine a, a light for the average investor, um, how they're being systematically taken advantage of. And by average investor, I mean anyone who has a 401k, anyone who has a mutual fund or an IRA, uh, anybody who invests in the stock market. Um, and I'm not saying that you know, every single money manager is a boogeyman um, and uh, uh, either is Justin. What we, what we are saying uh, is that the system is broken. Um, okay. And I can give you a couple of examples of that, uh, but I can also wait until later to give you those examples if you'd like. Yeah, well, Justin, let's get your background real quick first, and then we can dive in. Yeah, so I came to this project um, really as a financial neophyte, <clears throat> uh, which, which actually turned into an asset, because um, I was kind of able to bring just sort of, I think, the average experience into the fold, or, or lack thereof. My background um, is uh, research and journalism, and so... Um, so that's what was sort of firing my, my interest in this project was just an area that I didn't know a whole lot about. And, um, and, and Bobby sort of definitely brought his body of expertise to this. And together we sort of combined with a third author, Brie LaCase, um, and just started studying, you know, all the various corners of, of the market and, and, and of the, the investing experience. And, um, and 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 actually, all three of us didn't have a tremendous. Um, none of us had a lot of experience or a lot of knowledge about sort of mutual funds and these mainstream collective investment vehicles when we got started. Bob, Bobby Bobby certainly had a lot of experience with with some of the players in there, um, but as we started digging into this, we we discovered a whole bunch of things that were sort of surprising to us, and and that we came to find really kind of neatly embodied a lot of the problems and the flaws of the financial system writ large. And we also interviewed, you know, many, many, many people in the financial sector um, uh, for the book, uh, in, including um, Barney Frank, for example, uh, including Jack Bogle, um, and other notaries, uh, notar uh, uh, notaries in the financial industry, uh, mm -hmm. And many mutual fund uh, managers, uh, folks who are from private equity, uh, hedge fund managers. Uh, so we've we really spent four years trying to really understand this industry, and 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 part of what the book does is it it tries to, in simple language, demystify it for the average investor. Okay, uh, Jack Bogle's the is he the founder of Vanguard? 
Yeah. Yes, that's okay. Correct. Cool. Yeah. We, that's also, what I thought. we also spoke to Carl Icahn, um, who is an active investor, as you know. Big owner of Apple. Yeah, he's yeah. a pretty big guy. So, okay. guys, I'm I'm on your homepage, and um, you have this like, <clears throat> sorry, I have, you have this really cool like fact highlight area, and uh, I was just like reading it, looking through, and um, one of the the highlights it says um roughly ninety. Okay, so there are four hundred fifty thousand people in the United States offering financial guidance to consumers. Roughly ninety percent are salespeople. Um, right. And 10% are registered investment advisors. Uh, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, when I go to Best Buy or the, you know, the car dealership, that's 100% salespeople. I, I, I like the experience. Well, I, I think you have to look, you have to dig a little bit deeper than that and see what the fiduciary standard is for those salespeople. Uh, and the fiduciary standard is, uh, in fact, pretty low. They, they don't have to put the best interests of their client first. Uh, so they can put the best interest of their company first, and that, and that often is what happens, um, that they they have such a low fiduciary uh, threshold uh, that they end up putting their clients into products that are good for their company, but not necessarily good for their client. Yeah, and, and Andrew, I think to your point, which is a fair one, you know, when, when you go to a car dealership, you know you're going to try, they're going to try to sell you. That's, that's sort of an, it's an explicit part of, the experience of buying a car. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. what, we, what we have found and what the research shows is that um, there's a lot of confusion about who's a salesperson and who's not a salesperson within this universe of financial advisors. And, and therein lays the problem. And so, um, you know, if you come into, um, you know, a financial advisor context and your assumption is this guy's going to, you know, give me good advice upon which to base my retirement saving, but that's not the same assumption that he's making coming into that. You you can have a very po- problematic result from that, and I think that that's what we're finding. And, and actually, the White House Council of Economic Advisors came out with a study earlier this fall that said conflicted advice, so advice that would stem from a conflict of interest kind of like the one I just described mm-hmm. to you, mm-hmm. costs investors uh, collectively $17 billion a year. Wow. So, so in, in, in some ways, I would, I would say that the industry has sort of built that confusion and built that kind of conflict into their business models. And really, the whole impetus behind this book and our work is to shine a light on these problems and to help empower investors to recognize these problems and 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 find a better way and find a fair, more equitable way. Okay. So you guys said something earlier. You mentioned something called the fiduciary standard, right. which I had to look up. So I figured like, people listening to this might not know what that is. So can you explain exactly what that is? Well, there are... There, uh Various different financial uh, advisors have different um, fiduciary standards. So if you're what's called a registered investment advisor, you, your fiduciary standards is you have to put the best interest of your client first. Um, and as you articulated, okay. that's only 10% of the market. The, the next layer of fiduciary standard, uh, which is the remaining 90%, uh, is called suitability. 
And so the, the investment um, has to be suitable for uh, the client. Well, suitability is, is a pretty broad term. Does that uh, just okay. mean I can afford it? Like, what, what is suitability? So I think I think here, here's a good way to think about it. Um, you know, if, if there's a if there's a choice between two mutual funds that a financial advisor might recommend, mm-hmm. uh, and one of them throws off a higher fee or commission to the financial advisor, but they're both essentially the same thing. Maybe there's a little bit of a difference. You know, maybe the less expensive one pays him uh, costs the investor a little less, right? Um, the financial advisor who's not a fiduciary can recommend the one that's more expensive to the vest, to the investor that ultimately pays him the financial advisor more so that's where the conflict really comes into play you can have two things that are essentially the same fund but it's a higher price for the investor and and thereby a higher fee for the financial advisor and he can under that suitability standard recommend the more expensive fund to the to the to the the investor and and that you know that's the 17 billion dollars um yeah and the effect that that has on the industry um of which i think i articulated earlier i've been part of for a good part of my career um the, the effect that it has is it focuses the industry in collecting assets under management what's what's uh, the acronym for is AUM. And, and so what happens is if you are uh, in a company which manages money, what you're focused on is getting as many assets under management because that's how you get paid. You get 1% of the assets under management. Okay. Uh, and so rather than thinking about, well, what's going to be good for my client? Um, all you're really thinking about is accumulating those assets. And it doesn't yeah. mean folks are bad, but that's just the way the system is set up. Well, so look, that's their incentive. Yeah, that's their, their incentive is to get, you know because they get paid of you know one percent of whatever money they manage. Yeah, but, they don't get paid based on whether they've chosen a good stock or they performed well. Mm-hmm. Often, you pay your money manager when they lose money. Aren't the guys who uh, make all the money and have these huge fees? Aren't they the best ones? And then the advisors who are on my side—they're not really traders, so they don't really know. Like, isn't it more expensive, better? No, I mean that's definitely not the case, um, and I and I think that that's one of the great fallacies. Um, remember, you you have to look at this thing and back up. Nobody can predict the future. Nobody has a crystal ball in which they can say this is going to go up. The past experience does not predict future. Um, managed accounts have underperformed um, uh, index funds and ETFs uh, for the last ten years. Uh, the average returns for uh, hedge funds is pathetic. Um, the the only thing that we really know is that the more fees you pay, the harder it is to make money. Mm. And and so there's 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 definitely not a correlation between um, uh, you know how much people get paid and how they perform. Okay. okay. So, so I know. Actually, um, let, let me just toss in one more nugget there because, Andrew, your question was a good one, a valid one, and an important one. And I think that the industry in some ways exploits that line of thinking where you're paying, you know, by paying more, you're somehow getting more. And there's been a ton of research out there that shows um, the lower the fee that you pay generally the the better performance you get out of your portfolio. So it really flies in the face of that kind of conventional wisdom. 
the, the system is, you know, uh, and I think part of it is because of our retirement system, the way that's been structured. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you, if you uh, will excuse us a brief history lesson on our, our retirement system, um, as you guys probably know, for, for many, many years, uh, everyone had what was called, not everyone, but a lot of workers had what's called a defined benefit plan. Um, and it, what the, the good news about a defined benefit plan is that it provides the retiree for a steady stream of income for as long as they live. Uh, as you guys know, the defined benefit plan um, uh, essentially went uh, bankrupt and, and had to be bailed out by the federal government, um, the, especially the ERISA plans, which are the corporate plans. Uh, and so that the defined benefit plans now are, are fading out uh, and, so, and so have not been part or uh, won't be in the future. What came in to replace defined benefit plans were the 401ks and the IRAs. Um, and the, the problem with those plans, as it turns out, is that uh, the, the cost associated uh, with uh, managing a 401k is very high. But doesn't my company pay for that? So for I mean, example, as long as I'm... hire an administrator, you pay them? No, it doesn't. You do. Okay, so maybe I'm confused because uh, when I work for a blah, blah, blah company, you know, they, they match a certain percentage of my money, it goes in, and I know the funds have fees, but you're saying that even while I'm a current employee, there's going to be a fee on top just to participate? Yeah, there are, there are you know, again, it, it, it depends, but the, you know, because different 401ks are different and different um, administrators are, are, you know, not all administrators are the same, but generally speaking, what happens is that, um, you know, there's an administrator of your fund, that administrator hires a manager, uh, that manager then puts you in a mutual fund, and so by the time you're through, you're, the average fee is over 2%. Um, and so, and everybody, it sort of gets obscured by the match because everybody says, well, I'm getting this match. So, you know, that, that's a good thing, right? Because my employer's matching me, but it doesn't justify paying these huge fees. And so, you know, what happens is the system is set up so everybody gets to take a little piece of, of, of the retiree's money. And, and to give you an idea of just how much 1% is, so if you have a $25,000 investment, um, one percent over thirty-five years uh, with a seven percent average yield uh, cost you sixty-five thousand dollars. There's there, there's a little bit of a a, a Kaiser Soze uh, characteristic to the four hundred one k, and I've never said this before. And I'm sort of making it up as I go along, so let's try this. I, I like okay. it. Right. So the, <laughs> the the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing people that he didn't exist. Right. Well, mm-hmm. so the greatest trick of the four hundred one k is. Um, you know, what you notice about it is the, the employer match and the tax advantage, mm. right? And, and both of those two things are real and they're real benefits. The, the underside to that and the tricky part is that often the mutual funds that are offered within the context of a 401k can have really high fees or can be really lousy investments. And so, mm. The tax advantages in the employer match, like Bobby said, can be totally swallowed up and, and obscured by these high fees and by investments that, not, that may not be that great and that you may own for 30, 35 years and, and can end up costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars over a lifetime. 
Okay. And we're, look, we're in a situation now where we have a retirement crisis. Um, where you're, ha- you're starting to have the baby boomers retire, and they have not saved a lot of money. Well, uh, hold, hold on a second, because I, I want to go back to the 401k thing. And I could definitely appreciate that uh, there's like a lot of screwing happening. Um, but for a lot of people, like the, it's like the four hundred one k or nothing, and I think it's it's good to know that we're laden with all these fees. But uh, is there something that we could do to make it better? Yeah, because if you don't do it, you're giving up the match. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are some good benefits. So it's like the the devil you know. Uh, I don't know. Tell me uh, again. You know, the 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 devil you know may not be uh, you know worth investing through. Now we're not giving financial advice. I want to emphasize that. Um, what we're saying is, look, if, if, you, if you own a 401k um, or, you, or you're investing your money, you, you should spend uh, some time uh, engaged with your, in the case of a 401k, the administrator of your account. So you understand exactly what all the fees are. You understand where there's what we call legal larceny taking place. Um, and we outline the questions that, that the average investor should ask in the book um, so that you have a good idea of exactly what's happening to your money and uh, you know, what chances you have in terms of getting the return that you need. This is where like, I, I feel the disconnect. It's, you know, I look at the funds. I do my due diligence. I talk to the manager. I'm like, tell me about the fees. And he go, your response to me is like, they're ridiculous and crazy. You're getting screwed. Now what? Like, now I'm like, okay, well, I'm still going to contribute. Okay, well, you know, uh, again, there's you can roll over your 401k into an IRA, um, and the uh, the in, you know IRAs you can self invest, and uh, I think that if you if you decide to do that, then um, you need to spend time interviewing the ver- you know the various options out there um, for money management, and they're very. Uh, uh, diverse right now, and people charge a whole different, you know, layer uh, and continuum of fees now. And you need to go through the process of interviewing those folks uh, and making sure you understand what it is they're saying. And you can use the the questions that we outline in the book. Um, and when you and you should not stop until you get to someone that you feel you can trust. And so and I'll. I'll oh. Uh, Let me just chime in because I I hear you about the disconnect and I think that, um, you know, I think that there's there's sort of two ways to go. One would be, you know, probably the best thing that someone can do is to make sure that they're paying the lowest fee possible. That that, Mm -hmm. out of all the research we've done, that seems to be the best way to increase the likelihood of a good return over time. If you can if you can mitigate fees as much as possible. And, and prevent them from eroding your money, you're, 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 you're doing better than, than most other people out there. The other thing that I'll, I'll emphasize is what Bobby alluded to, which is you know, probably the best way to avoid fees is to buy stocks directly. And again, we're not giving financial advice. I would never tell you which stock to buy, but that whole model of picking stocks or buying in companies that you believe in has really been discredited by the financial industry who, of course, has everything to gain by dissuading people from going that route because there's, it just limits, it limits the exposure of fees. When you buy a company and you hang on to it and use that as your investment, you pay the fee once and that's kind of the end of it. 
So there is something to that, to going out there and, and you know, say, I'm going to buy some Google, I'm going to buy some Apple. These are companies that I know that I believe in and that, that I think constitute a good investment. And all we're saying is there's nothing less valid about doing that than picking some index fund that you have no idea what's in mm. there. If there's three or 400 different securities in there that no one, including the fund manager, could possibly hope to, to comprehend. But isn't there some logic to say, if I'm like a complete novice shipbuilder and I build 10 ships and I put all my eggs in that, like, is that, isn't that less optimal than giving my eggs to somebody who is a master shipbuilder and who will put it in a hundred ships that they built? I think like, that, that's, I feel like the average person does not know how to pick a stock just because they trust in a company like, Oh, I trust in GoPro because they like their products. Like, how does that translate to them knowing how like the fundamentals of the business are and like whether or not it's managed well, I feel like it's a lot of research for the average person to do. Well, well let me let me just uh, answer that question because it's a good question. I think that the, the industry has put out that, and it's become a monomic for the industry that you have to diversify. Right? If you're not diversified, you're not you know you're not investing well. Well, of course, the only way to diversify is to invest in lots of stocks or mutual funds or index funds, right? Mm. Um, and uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is there are there are many companies um, that you can invest in that are very diversified. Um, you can invest in Google. You can invest in Exxon. Um, you can invest in Warren Buffett. Um, and if you invest in them, you're plenty well diversified. Also, the market right now, um, it, it, and you know, is about eighty percent correlated. Um, so that you know, the, all the stocks tend to go up and down together. Uh, so there's a there's a myth about diversification. And Thomas, to your point about expertise, uh, this is such a it's such an important observation and such a such a good thought. I mean, right? Shouldn't shouldn't this be left to the experts? Shouldn't this be left to the people who know what they're doing? I think that one of the things that we realized, and, and Bobby sort of attested to this personally, and, and a lot of the other folks that we talked to who work on Wall Street is that at the end of the day, no, no one knows. No one can predict the future. And you can do all the analysis that you want, and the, the stock may still end up tanking, right? Like blue chip stocks yeah. 10 years ago were the New York Times and AIG. And so I think that you know, there's probably some value or there's possibly some value to analysis, um, and I think that that's what, you know, that, that's what the financial services industry is really banking on, right? If you go see some highfalutin money manager, it's going to be an impressive office and there's going to be a lot of credentials on the wall. But the underlying fact remains that no one can predict the future. And, you know, that's also, true. Also, the facts, you know, that managed accounts haven't done as well as index accounts. Mm-hmm. So there's the disconnect for me. Because we that's like that's the, the thing that's always thrown around. Nobody can predict the future. All this analysis doesn't, you know, mean that somebody who's been in the in the market for twenty years is gonna know any better than you do. But the fact still remains that I don't know the future and I'm a novice at picking stocks. So I but, see the logic in picking an index because I can see better performance than than eighty or ninety percent of all managed accounts. But where's the logic in like you should go pick ten of your own stocks, do your own research because those those managers can't predict the future because I can't predict it either, and I have less information to go off of. Well, again, how do you pick your index? How do you know which index to get in? Um, pick the one that has a super. Oh, I pick 
just the one that has a super low expense ratio. So the and one that has like almost no fees. How do you know that's the best index for you? I don't. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like I, I'm such a novice that I'm like, well, this index is well recommended. It has super low fees. And I'm a, you know, just a nerd that likes to play video games and read about other topics that are not like money related most of the time. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick that, that road. Emerging markets, uh, index fund. Um, or was I, have, I have some in an emerging markets fund, but most of my money is just in the Vanguard, Vanguard uh, the straight up index. So I'd say, you know, I, I don't and I wouldn't tell you that you've done anything wrong in doing that. I've got money in the Vanguard index fund. It's like six basis points. And I think that we're not poo pooing that as a model. I think that Vanguard and Jack Bogle have done a lot to lower fees and that is a perfectly credible approach. There are problems with index funds. However, as Bobby said, I mean, how do you know which one to do? Are are you happy with that? Are you happy just going along and putting your money into something because it's got the lowest fee, even though this index fund that has trillions of dollars under management sits back and lets, and, and really is, is not an actor in corporate governance lets these public companies pay their their CEOs multi-million dollar pay packages every year. So there are some, there are some problems with index funds, but they may be a lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. When we talk about index funds what we're looking at is how can we do it even better than that? What's the next step? You know, there was there was a real advantage when we went from high-priced mutual funds to index funds. What we're saying is let's go further. How can we make this even better? And, you know, there's, there's okay, also okay. one of the things that's important to understand is, is the d- disclosure issues. Um, and mm-hmm. when, when you look at, you know, first, all index funds are not the same. Some of them do have high costs. They, they, they never tell you what the trading costs are. Um, and that can be trading costs can be as high as one percent. Um, and another thing about uh, index funds, if you have a social conscience, a lot of the times you're investing in companies that you may not, you know, that may be abhorrent to you. Um, and then you have the issue of, well, you need to know what to pick and then you need to, you need to know what, to, when to sell. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of people end up hiring people to tell them what index funds they should be in and when they should sell. And of course that defeats the purpose because they have to pay a fee for it. So Justin, I have the you- same questions with individual stocks too, is, I guess this is the thing for me. Well, what I think that, I think that's true. You would have the same, but you have no fees. Um, and so, true. And so what we're arguing is that the only thing we really know is that it's harder to make money the more fees you pay. Mm. So, Justin, you're you're implying that there is potentially a better choice than something like uh, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund, you know, like what, what Thomas is invested in. Uh, what What is that? I mean, I feel like they, that's a tall order to fill to, to beat Vanguard. Well, uh, how well have you done so far this year? Um. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I've done well, but most of my stuff is not in an index fund. Right. So, so at the end of the day, we're not saying we're not telling people they shouldn't invest in index funds. As as Justin said, I think index funds go a long way towards addressing a real problem in the market, and it's a viable option for people. What we're saying is that index funds aren't perfect, and you should look at you know the things that we just articulated before you do that. But we're yeah, also yeah. saying that you don't you know lots of people won't invest in individual stocks. We understand that, but we don't think that that should be dismissed out of hand. It should be one of the options you look like at, you look at as an individual. So as let's we, take someone like Thomas for example and not only does he not have time 
to you know read the prospectus of a company and see what who's managing it but he doesn't want to do that you know he wants to go spend time with his girlfriend and and hang out and whatever and so what is the like what should someone like thomas do like is it just kind of like index funds aren't the best but for someone like thomas they're pretty damn good and and just you know leave it be or is there some approach that you guys recommend you know that uh that might be better for him well, I, I, I'm going to ask. I'm going to answer part of your your question, and then I'll leave the other part for Bobby. But in terms of you know not wanting to to spend the time, you know we're we're not suggesting that people need to um, you know get an MBA or become a financial expert. And 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 part of that is the responsibility of these companies to make this easier to be clear. We, 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 we are in support of a universal fiduciary standards that people don't have to guess, you know, when someone's taking their best interests or not. But the other thing that's going on here is that, you know, people will spend hours researching on Amazon.com which vacuum cleaner they should buy, right? And so even if you end up paying for that top-of-the-line Dyson, you know, that's the matter of a couple of hundred dollars, and we feel like people don't apply that same level of scrutiny to their investments or even their investment advisors, which ends up costing them, you know, many, many, many multiples of that over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a product of human psychology. Yeah, it's going to be pretty hard to change like this, like whole time delayed reward, uh, mental discounting that we just do naturally. There has to be some systematic way to do it better rather than just telling people like go against your own natural psychology and put more time into something that will, you know, have a return over time. You know, I, and, and to what uh, Thomas said, like, um, so fine, you know, we put a lot more time into finding the better vacuum. Uh, but we also just said that 90% of the people who are going to give us advice are just salespeople. So where do we go? you know, to find the right information, do the right research, and so that we could feel confident that uh, we're not getting screwed. Well, well, again, you know, we're not, we're not advocating any particular financial advice. What we're doing is saying you need to engage in the process, which is not, you know, you don't have to become, you know, financially literate to do that. But you have to understand what does it mean to invest in a mutual fund? What does it mean to invest in an index fund? What does it mean to invest in an ETF versus what it means to invest your stocks? And so we, we outline that in the book. And then if you decide you want to go to a money manager, then we give a couple of questions. And, the, you know, there's, I think, more, you know, there's like nine questions. And those questions are, do you have to put my interest first? What are my fees, both disclosed and undisclosed? Um, do you invest in the same stocks you're putting me in? Do you get paid if I lose money? Do you know what my investments are? Can you articulate them to me? What is your reporting like? And do you vote my proxy? Mm. And so those are questions that you need to know the answer of. And that process of how you engage with the market is probably the most important financial decision you'll make as, as someone who's your guy's age. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in index funds, but you should know what the, what the negative ramifications are of investing in index funds. Because if you don't do that, you may not have enough money to retire. I think there's also one other point that needs to be made here, which is, you know, Thomas and Andrew, you guys are obviously fairly savvy investors, whether you think of yourself that way or not. I mean, you, you guys have a podcast that, 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 that 
that explicitly says money matters here. And I think that that puts you um, way ahead of the game and way ahead of the average person when it comes to this. So, you know, Thomas, it sounds to me like you feel very clear that a low fee index fund um, is a good thing. And, and have a good rationale for, for, for why. And I think that that's totally valid and legitimate. And I think that, you know, in some ways you guys are doing God's work here. You are getting people to wake up and to realize that, that thinking about these things is important. And so I think that, you know, we're trying to do in some ways the same thing that you're trying to do, which is to get people to think about this stuff and to get them more engaged and to realize that the stakes are really high, both for them themselves individually and collectively. I, okay. I also think that there are there are places where there is what I what, what Justin and I call legal larceny in the market, and mm-hmm. it's it's very important to understand where that is, and 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 that's articulated in the book. And to give you one example of what what is c- completely legal, um, but is is really bad for investors, is if you have a four hundred one k, it is perfectly legal for a mutual fund or an index fund or an ETF to pay the administrator to get on the menu for that uh, particular uh, 401k. And so the, and that happens uh, over and over and over again. So the choices that the individual person have don't come from what's good for retirees. They basically come from some mutual fund or index fund paying to get on the menu. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly legal. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound very good at all. And 12B1 so, fees are another example. I mean, Justin and I could give you all kinds of examples um, uh, of that. So, again, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's very hard to think about what's going to happen to me years from now. But if you don't think about it, um, there are, you know, serious ramifications. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot here that we can get mad about, like this, all the injustices and inefficiencies in the market. Um, you know, I, I am mad about that stuff. But... Like you said, me and Andrew do a finance podcast. Like I feel like Andrew's way more money nerd than I am, but I am on the show and thinking about it. Uh, for the people who this is like just you know one interest out of many, I want to boil this down to some like actionable steps they can take rather than just being mad at the market. So and I think you guys have mentioned it here. I just want to like kind of say it a little more explicitly as we wrap up. So. Um, Get to the bottom of who is managing your 401k is what you guys are saying, like with your job. Right. And, and articulate those questions that, that I articulated to you earlier. Right. Ask those questions. And if you, you can go to our website and you can see those questions and, you know, you can take them off our website and, you know, we'll email it directly to your money manager if you'd like. Okay. And then with picking personal investment accounts that aren't tied to a 401k, um, is there a way people can find out very quickly if a manager is tied to the fiduciary standard or not? You know, if in the case that they decide not to pick an index or not to go with like a self-directed solution, like picking their own stocks or Betterment or Vanguard, like if they want a money manager. Yeah, just call them up and ask them. Okay. So you just say, is, is, is there like a, is there like a, a title that you only get to hold if you are held to the fiduciary standard or, or is like everyone money manager or, you know, a certified financial planner. And then like, like they just get to pick which yeah. standard they're hold to. I'd be careful about that. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about this is that really anyone can call themselves a financial advisor. And there are so many acronyms and it's so complicated and there is no universal standard today. So I think that really the only way to get to this 
is to ask. Okay. What is the point of somebody holding themselves to the fiduciary standard if there's no different like difference well, in title? Then they can't. They can't. First of all, then they can't participate in in the legal larceny. Um, they they can't put you in a mutual fund, which is a product that they're selling that's good for them and not good for you. Well, is, I, is, is, is the what's question, the incentive for them? Like, why, what, what is the incentive of a financial planner to hold themselves to that higher standard? Well, I think that there's there is. I, so again, we're we're not trying to demonize the the industry of anyone who would refer to themselves as a financial advisor, and there are good financial advisors. Who do want to put their customers' interests best, uh, their, their best interests first, and and I, I think that there's you know there are a lot of reasons why someone would want to be a fi- uh, be a, be a fiduciary. Um, some of them are sort of technical. Some of them are regulatory in nature. So, as a, as a registered investment advisor, for example, um, you're under the purview of the SEC most likely, um, rather than Finra, which is an industry trade group. Okay. Um, but I think sort of it, to, to boil this down into the simplest terms, I think that there's something um, there's something very positive both from an ethical and a business perspective when you put your customer's interest first, right? You're, you're doing yeah. you're doing right by your customer, and I think that when you do that, oftentimes you grow your business and you you get the loyalty of your customers, and you know there's something. There's something to be said for not trying to screw people out of their money. Well, to to go further on Thomas's question, because he said, like, how do you know? Um, I mean, like, do they have to be a CPA? Because I think any good salesperson that I call up and I and I ask them, like, do you have my best interests in mind? They're going to be like, yeah, of course I do. Like, no one's going to be like, well, no, actually, I'm trying to screw you, but you should totally keep your business. (laughs) You can. There are two questions you can ask. You can say, what is your financial, you know, standard? Um, you could also ask them, are they a registered investment advisor? Um, and if they're not a registered investment advisor, it's unlikely that their fiduciary standard is your best interest. So, so that's like the, the golden bullet right there. Yeah, it, and I think that the okay. issue around registered investment advisors is, is they, they tend to cater to higher net worth individuals. So what you, have, okay. it, it, what you have is one system for the rich and another system for the poor and, or the middle class. And, um, you know, if you look at what's happening to the financial market, the, you know, the 1% are sucking all the money up out of the middle class right now. And that's a system that is not sustainable and not healthy for our country. Mm, okay. So it's, it's basically an investor saying I'm holding myself to a higher standard and they can attract a they will attract better clientele in that case. That, that is correct. And so okay. that, and what we're saying is, look. Don't if you're the average investor, which is what we wrote the book for. You know, you, you, there are the market is changing now a lot, uh, and there are lots and lots and lots of different ways in which you can relate to the market. So you have to. What we're saying is, if you engage with the market, that you go through the process of interviewing people, you sit down, you ask the questions, then at the end of the day, you make a decision who you want to go with. And if you make a decision with someone who puts your best interest first, who discloses all the fees that they're charging, who invests money in the same accounts they're putting you in, who doesn't necessarily get paid if you don't make money, uh, who know what stocks they're actually investing in, who report in a way that you can understand it and actually vote your proxy and care about it, then you're going to be much better off. Mm. Okay. Cool. Well, do you guys think we've covered it pretty well? Yeah, I, I think there's, right. a, there's a couple of things that we could mention, that, but I don't want to go over our time, But because uh, there's some positive news out there, too. Um, okay. 
And I don't, I, well, first of all, the Department of Labor is trying to change the fiduciary standard um, so that uh, so that anybody who's managing a retirement account has to put your best interest first. Okay. If that does go through, then then there's then that's terrific. It's a very good thing for the system. Yeah, that'd be great. The the other thing that uh, that Justin and I put at the end of the book is a, a something called a cooperative investment partnership, um, which essentially is uh, using a, a the concept of a mutual fund. Um, as, as I'm sorry, as a mutual corporation, um, as a way to manage people's money. Um, and uh, the last thing is there, there is legislation um, that's in Congress right now uh, to essentially uh, produce a different way in which people, a different type of retirement fund, um, which would not be 401k uh, or an IRA, that we believe, would be, if it passes, would be much better. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess, yeah, potentially have to cover that in the future if those things go through. Right. All right, guys. Thanks so much for coming to the show. If people want to connect with you, uh, where should they go? They can go to uninvestedthebook.com and, um, and, and they can find our Twitter, Twitter handles at that point and, and all the other places um, that we pop up online. Okay. And I'm guessing they can grab the book from that site at whatever store they want to as well. That site, Amazon.com, all of your most reputable booksellers. All right. Cool, guys. Thanks for being on. Guys, if you have money questions, you can always email us, lessonmoneymatters at gmail.com. Or if you're part of the community, you can ask questions to all of our very smart community members who are in there chatting up all day, every day. And, uh, yeah. Also, if you want to subscribe, you can, well... Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you want to listen. And our favorite tools are over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. It's where we have all of our favorite books and apps and tools and things like that. So, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. We look forward to seeing you guys in the next episode. Later, guys, and later, Andrew. Later, man. Thanks. Please tell your friends about this show. Thank <laughs> you.